invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you have a Bible this morning, if you'd like to follow along. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13 will be our text this morning. But I'm going to begin for the sake of context in reading in verse 24. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whatever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? The disciples had questions, Lord Jesus, and so do we. As we study the Bible, as we hear it read, we have questions about what it means. And so we pause to pray before the time in which I preach. and We pay attention together to the preaching of your word. We pause to ask you, by your Holy Spirit, to be present. We're not there on the mountain, and we understand that this morning that unless Jesus returns, we're not going to see him transfigured before our eyes. But we do ask, O God, by your Holy Spirit, for a clear, fresh vision of the glory of Jesus Christ with the eyes of our heart. We pray in his name. Amen. 
There are often questions about what Jesus means in verse 28 of chapter 16 when he says, I truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does Jesus mean by that? We haven't seen, in a sense, the kingdom of Christ on earth. We see it in limited forms in the terms of a local church, but we certainly do not, as of this morning, see what the Bible prophesies and tells about the ultimate coming of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. Satan still rages and wages war against God. This world is certainly not full of peace, and it certainly does not evidence the rule of Jesus Christ as at this moment. So many have died. The apostles have all died by now. Many, uh, 2,000 years of church history, many believers have died, and in very real sense, we do not yet see the kingdom of Christ on earth. So what does Jesus mean? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 28, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus is referring to what happens in the very next verses in chapter 17. Six days later, the Gospel of Luke says eight days later, just including, it's just a matter of timing as to whether you include uh, the days or whether you're talking about in addition to. But here, Matthew says six days later, six days after these, this occasion, Jesus took with him three of the disciples, three of the disciples who will be the leading apostles. Peter, who will be the lead apostle, James, who will be considered head of the church in Jerusalem in the early days, and John, as you know, the beloved disciple and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God will use to write the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Peter, James, and John go along with Jesus, and he leads them up on a high mountain. They don't know, we don't know exactly what mountain there this was. There are some high mountains in that region, in that area, but we don't know the exact location. But this is significant. This, in, this, in the Bible, you think of some of the most significant times in the history of Israel, especially Mount Sinai, when God revealed himself to his people, and there was cloud, and there was fire, and they heard a voice audibly from Mount Sinai, speaking the Ten Commandments. And so throughout the history of Israel and the history of the scriptures of redemptive history, when God, there's a significant moment in which God reveals himself to his people, it frequently takes place on a mountain. What's most significant, of course, is not the location or the height, but what happens there. Now, we must remember, as we look at verse 2, that Jesus was an ordinary man. By all appearances, he was, everyone thought he was from Nazareth. He was maybe born in Bethlehem, but he was a local kid in Nazareth. And, and Nazareth was just kind of a, a country town. It, it, was, it was kind of town like Loudoun that might have a racetrack, you know. It, it just, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a place of great renown. It wasn't an intellectual center. You know, great leaders did not, were not born and reared in Nazareth. And so that was part of the offense of Jesus Christ, was he was just a local boy. He was just, by all appearances, just another Jewish man. No one walking by Jesus looked at him and thought, wow, there's a superhero. 
that guy is going to be the king of Israel, the king of the world. You wouldn't think that. If you saw Jesus walking by in a crowd in those days, you would just think there goes another Jewish man. That was the reality of the incarnation, that the eternal son of God became a man. And when he became a man, he became a real man. He did not cease to be God, but when he became a man, he became a true man, a real man. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a shell of a man. He was real flesh and blood, Jesus of Nazareth. But in verse 2, the disciples are about to witness his true nature. They've already seen this a bit when Jesus stilled the waves on the Sea of Galilee But nothing is like this moment. Many years later, Peter would recount this this occasion in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He he would reflect on that moment. This this is a major moment in the life of Peter and of James and of John. They will never forget this moment. Because all of a sudden, Jesus, who they have followed for two and a half years. They have been with him. They have eaten with him. They have followed him. They have walked long miles with him. They know him. And all of a sudden, this Jesus that they know is transfigured. It's, it's a word that's trying in human language to describe what's going on. He, he, he's still Jesus. He's still one like a man. And yet something is remarkably different because there is no regular man whose face shines like the sun. Now, you know what that's like in these days. These days of of late winter, you're going along and depending on where you're headed, you're looking through the windshield. And what are you doing? You're either putting your sunglasses on or either if you're like me and are, are too cheap to get prescription sunglasses or you forget you're, you're, you're putting down the visor. You're there at the intersection. You're trying to look up at the headlight. Is it green or is it red? You know, you don't know because that sun is shining square in your eyes and you can't see anything. His face shone like the sun, blazing with light and with glory. And his garments, regular clothing, began to shine as white as light. This is Jesus suddenly manifesting, making known the very glory, the very Shekinah glory of God. Incredible. Now there's some key Old Testament background that I want to spend a little time with you in this morning to help you understand this moment. It's amazing that Jesus' face began to shine like the sun. It's amazing that his clothing was white, but there is much more significance here for us to understand because this is no accident. This is, this is not um, just happenstance. This is a revelation of the fulfilling of what God had prophesied all along but especially in the visions and the prophecies revealed to God's servant, Daniel. This is about the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, you will not, some who here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Two, two terms or two phrases there, Son of Man, kingdom. Keep those in mind. 
And turn with me, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn with me back to Daniel. First of all, let's start in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel was a man of God who lived in a time when the people of Israel and Judah were exiled. Judah had been overthrown by the Babylonian Empire in what is modern-day Iraq. Daniel and his friends had been hauled off to this foreign land, but God had blessed Daniel in particular and used him. God blessed Daniel with the gift of being able to understand certain visions and dreams. It was God who gave this. It was not an innate ability. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, after Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about the kingdoms of the world, there's one kingdom power that's going to come after another. And, and, you know, aren't we really aware of the struggle in the world this morning for power, that there are kingdoms and forces that come and that go. And we see this and we feel this. We, we are, we're concerned. Is this another moment in which there's going to be a massive shift in the kingdoms, if you will, in the empires of the world? Well, it's very comforting to find all the way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel, the, the timeline of history, <laughs> that basically here was God laid out that there would be the Assyrian and the Babylonian, the Greek, Persian empires, and ultimately Rome. They were all prophesied by Daniel. And the picture here is one kingdom coming after another. There was this statue that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that was made of, of various elements of gold and of of iron and so forth and clay and it symbolized the kingdoms of man the kingdoms of this world and the passing of time but in verse 44 in those days God said in those days that those kings of those kings this, that is the kings of this world the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. This is the kingdom of God. This kingdom that will come to pass under the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, which one day will be established in full and will not end. But I, so there's, we could look at other passages in Daniel where this concept of the passing, changing of the various kingdoms of sinful men will ultimately one day give way to this kingdom of God on earth. Every square inch will be God's. Well, how does that come about? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. And this is the critical background for understanding Matthew chapter 17. You you think of the transfiguration of Jesus... We need to understand Daniel chapter 7. We won't read the whole chapter. But again, in the early part of Daniel chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, verse 1, Daniel saw dream and visions. And in this vision, he sees different beasts, four beasts coming up. And these beasts represent kingdoms. The the Babylonian kingdom, the, the Greek 
uh, empire, the Roman Empire, and finally an empire in the last days, a renewal of the Roman Empire. And, you know, you can look, I'm not, I'm not prophesying, you know, based on news reports, but you can see the unity of the European Union, and you don't have to be outlandish to say, yeah, it's actually possible that in the future there is a united and a renewed Roman Empire of some sort. But the point in the opening verses of Daniel chapter 7 is that these kingdoms of men are going to come and they're going to go. They're going to come and they're going to go until God establishes his king. I want to read beginning in verse 9. I'll read through verse 14. Daniel kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. So this, in these two verses, we see that Daniel has a vision of God the Father, God who is spirit. He's not a man, he's not an old man in the sky, but here God is revealed to Daniel as this ancient of days, this, this man who has head like pure, his hair is like pure wool. In other words, it's just brilliant and his throne is aflame. This is a vision of God in his throne room. The most high God. And Daniel is seeing his glory. And notice that God is sitting. God is not pacing. God is not nervous while the kingdoms of this world are raging. And all these things are going on. He is seated on his glorious throne. And his throne coming out from there is fire. In other words, wrath upon the nations. But then Daniel keeps looking and this horn the horn represents this this king this leader kind of like a putin figure but you know you can get the idea putin is so arrogant so full of himself but we get used i mean there's there's all kinds of leaders that we could point to in our day and throughout human history who have this kind of arrogant full of themselves boasting attitude who rage against god and rage against the truth Well, this is ultimately the Antichrist in the last days, and he's speaking things against God and against God's people, but then he's destroyed in verse 11. But I especially want to direct your attention to two verses, verses 13 and 14. This is really why I brought you here this morning. Daniel keeps looking. So he's seen a vision of of God, Almighty God, the Father on the throne. But he keeps looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." These are two of the most amazing verses in the Old Testament. You have a glorious vision of the the glory of the Most High God, 
And there is this mysterious figure, this messianic figure, one that is like a son of man. He looks like a man, and yet he's not an angel. He's able to walk right up to the throne of the Most High God. Now, no ordinary man does that. No one. There's every indication that he, unlike the angels or unlike sinful men, has absolute unity and access to God, the Father. He comes right up to the Ancient of Days. Nobody goes right up to the Ancient of Days unless they are one with the Ancient of Days. This one like the Son of Man, he goes up to the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him. Obviously, there's approval there. He's not cast out. And to him, to this one like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, this one who has this appearance of coming in the clouds, has, has the glory of the one who's on the throne. This one, like a son of man, shares the glory of the Ancient of Days. And to this one, like a son of man, verse 14, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tribe might serve him. And the word serve there, by the way, is worship. It's the same word. This is amazing. There is one God, and yet there's an indication here that this one God is more than one person, and that this one like the Son of Man one day is coming, and when God sends him, this one like a Son of Man will establish the kingdom of God on earth, and he will be given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that will never pass away and never be destroyed. You see, all of the Bible is pointing us towards the kingdom of God. Do you understand that? That's what the Bible's about, is the kingdom of God, ultimately. The kingdom of God that is coming, and that you must be prepared for, and that you must be ready, or else you will not participate, but be cast out. And that kingdom comes when the one who is given the kingdom comes. And so back to Matthew chapter 17, when Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured, they are essentially seeing this one like a son of man. They're seeing what Daniel saw. Because Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself. He loved that title. Matthew 16, verse 28. 28. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see, what, the Son of Man. And then you see down in chapter 17, verse 12, again, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus owned this messianic title. And when he used it, he was directing his disciples back to that Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 passage. He was claiming to be the one to whom God the Father gave the dominion and the power and the kingdom. And his disciples are seeing it. In the remainder of the time this morning, just if you're wondering, those of you I know are waiting for an outline. What we've been considering here, first of all, this morning is the king's glory. The king's glory. Jesus is of Nazareth, is no ordinary man. He is this son of man. He is the king to whom God has given all dominion, all authority, and he is glorious. Jesus has said that there would be some who would see the son of man coming in his kingdom, 
And while there on the mountain, you did not see, they did not see the full extent of the kingdom of God on earth because the king, the son of man, is the one who possesses the authority and the power and the kingdom basically is embodied in him. When they saw Jesus transfigured before him, them in his glory, they saw a picture of the reality of the kingdom. He doesn't need tanks. He does not need any missiles. He doesn't have any nuclear power. He's glowing with the glory of God. The kingdom has come, and they're seeing the king in his glory. Secondly, this morning, I want you to consider with me briefly the king's authority. The king's authority. Peter, James, and John, are, they must be amazed they're, 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 they're seeing Jesus transformed, transfigured before them, although it's a testimony to Jesus' humanity that in verse 4, Peter still talks to him. He still, that's amazing. Jesus' face is shining like the sun. His clothes are like white as light. And yet Jesus still, Peter still knows it's Jesus, and he still feels comfortable enough to be able to speak to Jesus. Interesting. But Jesus isn't alone. In verse 3, we learn that Moses and Elijah appear. Now, remember, Elijah was brought directly into heaven on a fiery chariot. He never died. He, he just God just brought him to heaven. And Moses, it's interesting, no one ever knew where his body was buried, for God took care of that himself. And so here, the disciples see Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And in the other Gospels, we learn that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his coming sufferings and death, which would happen about six months later. They were strengthening Jesus. But, but what are we to understand about this? Why Moses and Elijah? Why not David? Why not some of the other Old Testament figures? Well, it, it, seems, most, it seems significant. Of course, Moses was the author of the law, the first five books of the Bible. And that is the Bible, according to the Jews, could largely be divided into the law and the prophets. And so you have here with Moses and Elijah, Moses, you have the law, Elijah, you have the greatest prophet. You have the law and the prophets. You have the representation not only in these men, but of of men, but of the scriptures themselves at that point. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus does not abolish the law and the prophets. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount. I do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Rather, Jesus fulfills what was prophesied through Moses, what was prophesied through the prophets. Moses and Elijah were some of the most revered figures in Judaism, and rightly so. And here they are conversing with Jesus, who is transfigured. And Jesus, there's an evident picture here of the unity of this Jesus with the greatest authors and men of the Old Testament. He is a fulfillment, not contrary. And so he is the one that the scriptures have been pointing to. It's evident in his in his appearance, and it's evident in the testimony of two of the greatest godly men in the Old Testament. 
God is bringing here testimony to the apostles. And why is this significant? Because Peter, James, and John are going to be the apostles, be the foundational elements of the New Testament church. They are the ones who are going to preach that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And so God is allowing them to witness not only the visible glory of Christ, but is also providing two attesting witnesses that Jesus is this one like a son of man. He is the one to whom has been given the kingdom. But there's another aspect here that we're taught in these verses. Peter, of course, speaks up. Peter's always opening his mouth at the bad time, wrong time. You know, and we beat up on him, but he, he means well. I mean, there's nothing wrong here. He, he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. That's true. I mean, wow. I mean, let's, let's stay here. And, and he thinks, okay, finally now we're getting to something, you know. Jesus is glowing. Uh, Moses is here. Elijah's here. Let's do this. Let's 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 go. Let's set, stay here for a little while. But then we're gonna we're gonna get this kingdom thing going. Again, he's he's not listening to what Jesus says that suffering and death must come first. Notice, interesting too that, and we don't want to make too much of this, but Peter says, "I'll make a three tabernacles here: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's, it's interesting when Peter says that, while he was still speaking, God interrupts Peter. How good is that? God interrupts. God Almighty, the, the Ancient of Days on the throne, interrupts Peter. He's in the middle of talking, da-da-da-da-da, and all of a sudden, I mean, you think, my voice in here this morning, <laughs> you know, that moment on that mountain, we don't know what the dynamics were, but the voice of God was enough to take this seasoned, hardened, blue-collar, strong man and put him on the ground. The voice of God spoke, a voice out of the cloud said concerning Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, there's an assertion here of the authority, the unique authority of Jesus. He not only has glory, but he has authority that surpasses Moses and Elijah. It's not that the writings of Moses or the prophets were at odds. Not at all. They are the scriptures of God. But we have a little idea of what's going on here. If you briefly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 helps us understand the significance of this moment in verses 1 and 2. There in Hebrews 1, we learn, verse 1, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. In other words, God had been speaking, yes, through Moses, yes, through the prophets like Elijah. But in these last days, God has spoken supremely, most perfectly, most authoritatively in his Son. And Peter, James, and John, and the apostles must understand that what Jesus tells them, what Jesus commands them, is from God and is authoritative. 
He is not subject to Moses and Elijah. He is the king of Moses and Elijah. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the king. He is glory. And he, is a, he has all authority. To him is given dominion. And the father here, this isn't the first time that God has spoken. Remember, God spoke at Jesus' baptism as well and said essentially the same thing. This is my beloved son. The Father loves the Son. Thirdly and finally this morning, we've learned of the King's glory, the King's authority. In closing, I want you to consider with me the King's mission. The King's mission. The voice from heaven speaks. God the Father speaks. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground. They were terrified. They don't even look up. I mean, their faces are literally in the dirt. And we have to remember as we worship God, who we're worshiping. That's, that's one of our, our, our aims here at the church, at Reformation Bible Church. In a day and age in which, you know, we're, 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 we're just, well, we're not teaching this truth about who God is. We are totally lying to people when we say, oh yeah, God's just your pal in heaven. He just sits in the front seat of your truck, and you know what? He's good with that. He's changed. He has not changed. He is the same God yesterday and forever. This God who terrified Peter, James, and John is the God we have been worshiping this morning, if we're worshiping the true God. He's awesome, and the church today needs to remember that. Even as we appeal to men and women to trust in Jesus Christ, that they may know God and worship God, we need to remember that the God we are coming to, if any one of us this morning heard our voices, I don't care who you are, I don't care how proud you are, or how experienced you are, or how seasoned you are, every single one of us would have our face on this concrete floor. This is who he is. This great and glorious God. And Peter, James, and John are literally leveled by the glory of this God. And they are frightened. And these guys are fishermen. They don't get scared easily. They're scared out of their wits. Their faces are in the dirt. And they don't move until, verse 7, Jesus came to them, reaches out his hand, perhaps puts it on their shoulder, and says, don't be afraid. Here's a little... Uh, indication of the character of Christ. Jesus comes along and helps us. We, are, we ought to be terrified of God, but this great and glorious God has given us a mediator, and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes, tells them, don't be afraid, and, and they get up. They lift up their eyes. Moses isn't there anymore. Elijah isn't there anymore. And then they start making their way down the mountain. And Jesus tells them not to, to sh- tell anyone, not even the other disciples, about this vision. Why? Because Jesus is on a mission. And if they tell him what they just saw, it could be that they try to install Jesus as king right there and then. But that wasn't the plan. He had to go die first. Because you see, none of us can come into this great and glorious kingdom that will remain forever unless our sins are dealt with first. The angel said to Joseph, you will call him Jesus. Why? Verse Matthew 1 verse 20. 21, because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came the first time. Not to save them from the Romans, not to save them from the Putins of the world, 
He comes the first time to deal with our most serious problem, and it's our own sin. He told them again that he had to go and to suffer and die. Disciples have a question about the prophecy of Elijah. That's from uh, just a few pages back in your Bible. We won't take the time this morning. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the two last verses in the Old Testament, say that before the coming of the Messiah, that Elijah would be on the scene. And Jesus tells his disciples that though John the Baptist wasn't literally Elijah in the flesh, he was Elijah in the spirit. In other words, the spirit of Elijah And yet Israel rejected John the Baptist and his testimony about Jesus. And likewise, verse 12, Jesus said, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of these evil, sinful men. But that was the plan. That wasn't a a mistake. That wasn't an accident. Go back over to chapter 16, verse 21. What was the mission? That Jesus would go to Jerusalem, verse 21, suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. That was the mission in order to save his people from their sins. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't want a kingdom in which he's just king and there's no citizens. God has, in his love, called you and me, men and women who are sinners, and he welcomes us to the kingdom. However, in order to enter into the kingdom of God and enjoy the future kingdom that God has for his people, life forevermore, count on it. Christ is going to rule on this earth, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It is going to happen. And God invites sinners to escape judgment and to come into the kingdom. But we must have our sins dealt with. And that's why Jesus suffered, bled, died, and rose again. He lived a life of obedience for us that we cannot live. And on the cross, he died a death, a sin-atoning death for our sins that none of us here can die. So here you are this morning. And you may be the worst sinner there is, or you may not think you're not that bad. It doesn't matter. Any sin. We cannot approach the presence of holy God. We cannot enter the kingdom with sin. We must have our sins dealt with. And God has provided for our sins by Jesus bearing the penalty in himself. He did die, and he rose on the third day from the dead, indicating that the sin penalty, that sin debt was paid for, and that all who trust in him will be saved from their sins and from the condemnation that we all deserve. The king's mission. There's no one like Jesus. And as we think about him, we need to remember this glorious vision that the disciples had on the mountain In closing, I'll just say, some of us here this morning, we need a mountain moment. And I don't don't have a slideshow this morning. I can't show you pictures of Jesus glowing. But no matter how poorly I may have tried to proclaim this this morning, no matter how you've heard it, we're talking about this is God's word. And he has told us this morning about the glory of his son. And so I ask you in closing, what do you think of his glory?
What do you make of his authority? And have you, by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, embraced his mission? We all must. Because in the end, there will not be your kingdom and his. We've learned in the scriptures this morning, there is only one kingdom that's coming. And its dominion knows no limit and no end. May God grant that everyone in this room be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and enter the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would help us to know and understand the glory of Christ. And in these days of so much tumult in the world of disruption, we pray that you'll settle the hearts of your people with the comfort to know that you spoke of this all along and that the kingdom is coming. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.